0: Hey, it's Brad Block, otolaryngologist and host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast, and welcome back to the November Friday Takeover, Week 5. I interview guests that cover a wide range of topics, all that have the goal of helping physicians become the best versions of ourselves, in and out of the exam room. This week, we cover ethically utilizing the power of placebo. Let's start the show. (laughs) Dr. Melanie Heneff, MD JD, is a Chicago native and obtained her MD from Rush Medical College in Chicago before completing a combined residency program in emergency medicine and pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis. She is triple boarded in emergency medicine, general pediatrics, and pediatric emergency medicine. She recently obtained her JD from Indiana University. Robert H. McKinney School of Law, and is currently an associate professor of clinical emergency medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine, and partner in Boone County Emergency Medicine. Today's discussion is all about informed consent, how it's defined, documented, and dispensed. What actually requires a signed form? What information that signed form should contain? contain, And how much information might be superfluous? We then get into a conversation about capacity, Competence: what the difference is between the two, and how to determine and document, of
1: course, capacity. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee, and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Melanie Hennep, thanks so much for being
0: on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So to start, let's just talk about the JD, because you sent me your bio, and it mentions your JD, like, in passing, almost. Like, you know, you're triple-boarded, and pediatrics, and EM, and pediatric EM, and then, oh, I also got a JD. So first, why did you decide to get it? And two. How does it work into your practice and life?
2: Sure. The JD is kind of recent news. I graduated law school in the beginning of the pandemic, which was super fun. So if I wasn't working in the ER, I was studying for the bar exam in uh, spring and summer of 2020. So that was pretty miserable. And I actually thought about law school in undergrad. I looked at MD JD programs, and at that time, I just could not commit to that kind of length of education and school debt, but I stayed interested in law and uh, a lot of my teaching at our residency program revolves around legal issues. And so finally, when my kids were old enough that they didn't need me around very much, I went back to law school at age 48. And so here I am, recent law school grad, still full-time clinical emergency medicine, part-time academics, and then part-time legal consulting.
0: So as the father of three small boys, when is that time in their life when they're, they're not going to, it's not <laughs> going to be so labor intensive?
2: When you feel like you're getting adequate sleep. So that may be about a decade or so down the road for you. Great. At this point right now, I have one in vet school in North Carolina and one just accepted to medical school and then one at home senior in high school. They were pretty independent by the time I went back to school.
0: Got it. Okay. So today we're going to be talking about informed consent. Can you start by giving us just a working definition of what informed consent is?
2: One thing I think is interesting that in older case law and older legal studies, informed consent or failure of informed consent was actually a battery issue. It was a criminal law issue, but it evolved into more negligence. And so in the medical arena, it falls under medical malpractice if there's a failure of adequate informed consent. And so different states actually define it in their statutes. And so it'd be wise to know how does Cincinnati or Tennessee, wherever you practice, how do they define informed consent? But there's very common similarities. So first of all, it has to be signed by a patient or a representative has to be in writing. There has to be at least one witness. That's at least 18 years of age. Ideally you'd have the physician and someone else, a physician, and nurse, plus the patient signing. And it has to be explained to the patient that there are risks to a procedure or risks to treatment benefits, and then alternatives need to be discussed. So legally, it's considered there's a rebuttable presumption that the consent was informed if you meet all those elements. I would add that the patient really has to verify some understanding. So you could check the boxes and say, we talked about risk, we talked about benefit, we talked about alternatives. But to me, unless you add that element of the patient voiced back understanding or the patient asked questions and I answered them, patient verified they understood, I think you're missing really the heart of what informed consent is. Got it.
0: Okay. One thing that you mentioned at the beginning was it has to be signed. What is the minimum amount? What is the minimum amount of invasiveness that would necessitate a signed consent? Do we get consent before starting an IV? Like, w- at what point do we say, like, uh, what I know as an ENT, one thing that we do is nasal endoscopy, laryngoscopy. It's a diagnostic procedure where you're sticking a camera in somebody's nose, but some ENTs I know get written consent and some don't. So, you know, what point is it necessary to get something signed?
2: Right. That's a great question. And I think it varies a lot between different subspecialists. So, for example, in the emergency department, I don't get informed consent for draining an abscess intubating a patient, usually, because it's usually an emergent situation. I don't get an informed consent for suturing. Basically, by virtue of presenting for a certain evaluation, there's an implied consent. And to me, if it's something that maybe the patient didn't expect, didn't understand, involves more risk than simple suturing or routine testing, I may get a written consent. Another example would be lumbar puncture. If a patient presents with fever, headache, To me, a lumbar puncture is an essential part of working that patient up for meningitis. So I don't necessarily get a written consent, but I will usually document a verbal consent. As you increase on the spectrum of invasiveness or where the patient is going to be sedated and not able to withdraw consent at some point, then I think you really have to have it documented. You're taking the patient to surgery, there needs to be something written and signed, unless you meet an exception, like the emergency exception, patients unconscious or not able to give consent. And there's a presumption that a patient will want you to do what's best for their best interest or that you would do what's needed to be done to be life-saving without waiting for consent where a delay might be unreasonable.
0: So when you're getting a consent for surgery there, or, or some sedated procedure, they're consenting to something that you are gonna be doing to them while they are asleep, as opposed to when I might biopsy someone's tongue they're awake and holding their tongue out for me to do it. So the consent is implied because otherwise they wouldn't let me do it.
2: Exactly. So that patients have the right to withdraw that consent at any point, but they obviously can't if they're sedated. Right. They
0: could just close their mouth.
2: Exactly. I think it's also important to remember, it's not just procedures. If you're starting a patient on, let's say a highly toxic chemotherapy drug, Or even today, opioids, patients should be informed, not necessarily in writing, although you might want to put it in your chart, that patient was advised to pain medication. I think patients, if they're started on a drug where there are known very serious side effects, you still need to inform them or document something. You can't rely on the fact that a pharmacist is going to put a label on the drug. So for example, if I prescribe hydrocodone, I always put in my chart, the patient needs to know not to drive, not to drink alcohol, not to take additional Tylenol if they're taking a combination product with hydrocodone and Tylenol. So that I wouldn't necessarily have the patient sign, but I would put it in writing in my chart.
0: Yeah. Also for those listening, you're prescribing a quinolone. There should be some written consent about the side effects of quinolones. So there've definitely been cases about those things.
2: Especially recently, we used to prescribe Cipro. All the time. And now I really hesitate as more information has come out. So I do feel like I agree that's one of those drugs that patients should be aware of. And there are so many. You can't read a package insert to every patient on every drug. But I think if you're prescribing something that is unusually risky or has significant known side effects, your due diligence is to at least inform the patient and document that you had that discussion.
0: So, how much information then is too, not too much information, too little information, right? What's the minimum amount of information that we need to be providing to a patient for them to be considered in? Because sure. you can really go to great lengths to describe extraordinary unlikely outcomes and extraordinarily unlikely side effects. You're not going to read the whole package insert. So right. what's the minimum that we need to be doing in order to be considered appropriate? So informed. that's
2: actually defined by a lot of state statutes. Statutes. And courts tend to lean on the reasonable patient and reasonable and prudent physician standard. So in other words, if you're recommending a procedure, let's say you're a surgeon doing a spinal surgery, the biggest risk patients would want to know about certainly is could they end up paralyzed? there's a risk of infection. There's a risk of death during anesthesia. So any reasonable patient would want to know that. Any prudent physician would want to tell the patients about that. Now, something super obscure, the 30th item on the list of complications in the package insert, no, you're not held to that standard. You're usually held to the reasonable patient and reasonable physician, reasonable and prudent physician standard. Isn't though medical malpractice also reasonable and prudent? First of all, you have to meet all the elements, right? So is there a physician-patient relationship? Is there a duty? Usually that's part of the relationship is there harm? Is the harm caused by something you did or an omission? So you have to link all those elements. And so I think that that's part of informed consent. The flip side of informed consent is refusal of care. So if a patient leaves against medical advice, it's just as important that you document informed refusal.
0: Well, no, what I'm getting at is When a physician is sued for medical negligence, right, the standard is reasonable and prudent and reasonable and prudent surgeons have complications. And yet sometimes when we're sued, it's you took reasonable and prudent care of the patient and still had a complication and still get sued and still lose the case.
2: It's a gray area. And ultimately that gets decided by if it's a bench trial, a judge, or if it's a jury trial, the jury, or it becomes a battle of the experts, right? If it comes to a malpractice case, there's no way to define that a hundred percent. But when you're looking at standard of care decisions, it's what would a reasonable physician in a similar situation, similar practice do. And our practice, basically our standard of care is national. So Many, many years ago, it used to be defined, well, what do you do locally if you're in Indiana or you're in Florida? But now it's more of a national standard. So experts tend to testify from all over and then the jury compares the experts, weighs the evidence, and the standard, again, it's not always written down somewhere. There's no textbook that's authoritative, but if you're meeting a reasonable standard, it doesn't mean perfect care, doesn't mean the best care ever, It means that you met a minimal standard of competence and reasonableness that should be defensible. Now, we've all seen disastrous malpractice decisions, right? There's no guarantee, but you really want to be able to show um, a court that you're you're acting in the patient's best interest, that you've made a good faith effort to do what you thought was reasonable.
0: So I've heard from attorneys that you should be documenting those complications right you should have a consent form that actually delineates those complications so that it's written for the patient and it's document and it's therefore it can be proven that you did mention those complications i've heard from different attorneys that you shouldn't have a list because if something happens that's not on that list then you've basically handed the case to the plaintiff which is it should we have an exhaustive ridiculously long list that includes every, like if I'm doing a phrenotomy on a patient under anesthesia, which takes two, you know, it's a little bovy under the tongue, which we do on our older kids. Do I have to put the risk of death? So do I have a reasonable list? Do I have an exhaustive list or do I not have a list?
2: So I think there's an extreme. So I review, I've reviewed hundreds of medical malpractice cases in my consulting work for all different specialties. And so one extreme, I saw a surgeon document R slash B slash A discussed. So risk benefits, alternative discussed, right? That kind of covers it, right? It's pretty concise. You know, it doesn't stand up well necessarily in court. The other extreme is you can't possibly document every possible complication. So you have to kind of rely on that. The magic words are prudent physician, reasonable patient. You made a good faith effort to advise the patients of the likely risk. You don't have to list every single possible outcome, but there definitely should be some effort. I think the days of the generic form where, you know, it just says uh, the nurse would hand the patient the form and they sign this generic form. It doesn't really list any specifics, tends to not be viewed favorably.
0: What you're saying is there should be a tailored form for this specific procedure.
2: There should be at least some effort to hit the highlights. Now that doesn't mean everything. That doesn't mean the 36th most likely complication, but there should be at least the things that a reasonable patient would care about. Can I end up paralyzed from this procedure? Could I die from anesthesia? So I think that, again, you have to make a little more effort than just writing R slash B slash, again, we put patients before paperwork. So you can't possibly list every complication. I think a happy medium is necessary. And I think that's what most, I would say, reasonable and prudent physicians will do.
0: Okay. So then you also want to prove that the patient has understood what you've discussed. And so how much should the patient be able to repeat back in order to be considered informed? Some of the things that we're doing, Pretty complicated.
2: Right. I think it's also ideal if you have another person with the patient that can sometimes help you assess that. Some trends are actually recording that conversation. So, even video and audio recording the informed consent. Another trend is for hospitals to use um, a system where, let's say, it's a common procedure, cabbage or a cholecystectomy, the patient watches a video. And, you know, takes a quiz, checks the list. Now, that's not realistic in any kind of emergency situation, but those things are definitely evolving. I think at a minimum, you need to document that, you know, the patient had an opportunity for questions, answered all their questions, they voice understanding of risk, benefits, and alternatives. A
0: quiz. A quiz sounds a little patronizing.
2: It can be, but I don't know about you, but my institution makes physicians that take a lot of quizzes. I um, just had to watch three modules about bullying in the workplace, harassment, and take really patronizing quizzes. So I think it's a good way to reinforce understanding and also recognizing that our patients have a huge spectrum as far as education, even language barriers. I think that more efforts are being made to make sure that patients have access to more information if they want it. And especially with the CARES Act, patients can access the records. They have a lot more opportunity to to be proactive and to read what we're documenting. And so some patients will want all the information possible and some patients really just want to sign the form. It has to be tailored to some degree, what can the patient comprehend and how much information do they want? When
0: you're asking a patient to, can you repeat back what I just said, or or you're quizzing them? (laughs) How can you elicit that without sounding patronizing?
2: I think it's difficult, but I think patients are overwhelmed. And so sometimes you can just acknowledge, like, I realize that's a lot of information. I'm sure it's overwhelming. Do you want to think about this for a while? Do you want some questions down? Do you want to ask me questions right now? Can you tell me just what you understand or what you don't understand? So I think you just sort of have to leave some open-ended opportunity. My experience is that it just varies widely. Sometimes some of the most education educated patients have the most questions and sometimes the least educated patients have no questions. It just depends. And so I think an ideal is if a patient can at least give you a little bit of a repeat back. We do that in practice, right? When we give verbal orders, the nurses will repeat back to make sure they understood what we said okay, am I clear you wanted two milligrams of hydromorphone? So it's a common patient safety practice. And so I don't think it's that far away from dealing with patients and having them repeat back a little bit. Obviously, they don't have to recite word for word, but I think if they understand the gist of it, yes, I could die if I sign out while I'm having a heart attack. Or yes, the surgery could leave me paralyzed, but the risk is low. Okay.
0: So you and I practice, you're in emergency medicine, Pediatric emergency medicine. I'm in a very outpatient-oriented practice, so some of these issues don't really come up often for me. More often for you, uh, which is why you've lectured on it before. We talk about we're so we're going to talk about capacity, right? So, what's the difference between competence and capacity?
2: Sure, that is a common area of confusion. In fact you may catch me confusing the terms too, just because it is such a common issue. So capacity is generally what we deal with as physicians when we're making our day-to-day decisions about can a patient sign out against medical advice? Can a patient consent for this procedure? Can a patient go home and follow the treatment recommendations? Whereas competency is usually more of a legal evaluation. So the most common way, um, to think of it as we've all heard uh, people saying, is this patient competent to stand trial? So again, that's a legal determination and usually has to do with their, their mental capacity. For example, let's say that a patient is involved or a person is involved in a criminal trial. They have to be able to understand the nature of the process, their alternatives. So the competency evaluation can involve a psychiatrist, can involve a hearing in a court. It can involve a very detailed evaluation of the mental abilities. Whereas capacity is something that is a day to day evaluation where a physician will say, okay, bottom line, does the patient understand the risks, benefits, and alternatives? Can they voice back some understanding? And I do that every day. My patients in the ER today, I had a patient who signed out against medical advice and she had elevated. Um, cardiac enzymes, no EKG changes, but she was adamant. She was not staying in the hospital. She understood she could die. She understood that she could be experiencing further cardiac damage, but she had every right to sign herself out and she was willing to assume those risks. So I had to make a you know two minute judgment that, okay, she has capacity. Whereas if I was worried about the patient's competency, You would involve a psychiatrist, maybe even a uh, forensic psychiatrist, the people that specialize in evaluating people before criminal trials. So I usually advise my residents and medical professionals to focus on capacity, not competency, because 99% of the time we're looking at capacity. Does the patient have the capacity to understand what we're telling them and what their uh, choices are here? So when you're
0: deciding whether or not a patient's
2: has capacity,
0: how are you taking your own values out of the picture, right? Because the decision that they're making might conflict with the decisions that you would make in a similar situation. So how do you know you're not projecting your own values on the patient and deciding that they don't have capacity?
2: It's really hard. You have to take a step back and look at that person and what are their priorities? What's their background? And again, it's especially in the emergency department, it's evaluated in a very short time. I try to involve family members or relatives if possible. So I know, okay, is this typical or consistent with the patient's values? One common example is I can't tell you how many times I've had patients who, especially in COVID where we have so many sick patients that require admission, They refuse admission because they have a dog or a cat or 10 cats at home and they know nobody else can take care of them. They are not coming in the hospital. They have to take care of their animals and your options are limited. I can't go run out to their house and take care of their 10 cats. Oh,
0: you're going to get toxoplasmosis.
2: That patient, that might be their life. Like that revolves around their pets. And so I can't make a judgment on, okay, they're willing to risk their life and their safety to care for their animals. The best I can do is um, make that capacity decision and try to make it non-judgmental. People are allowed to make bad decisions. And I tell people that it's my job to tell you this is what I think is in your best interest this is what I think could happen if you don't uh, follow these recommendations, but ultimately the hospital and the ER and the clinic, they're not jail. I can't protect you from making bad decisions. I just have to do my job and offer you the best information I have and make sure that you understand it. What if
0: the patient's decision seems to conflict with what they stated to be their goals of care, right? Like they're making this decision, but in doing so are are contradicting themselves when they're describing to you how they're going about making the decision?
2: So I think it depends on the urgency of the situation too, because again, it's a difficult judgment call to decide capacity. And capacity, again, is usually in a short period of time. It's not like a uh, competency evaluation where that might go on for days or weeks or might even involve a court hearing. So I think that you have to listen to the patient, listen to anyone that knows them, you have to decide how urgent it is. Let's say I have a COVID patient and they are going down the tubes, they need to be intubated. And they say, I wanna live at all costs, but no, I don't want that tube. I have to make a call, right? And I don't have days to think about it. And so the, I think the magic words for physicians to remember is if you're making a good faith effort to find out, you know, what's consistent with the patient's wishes, are you acting in their best interest? Are you acting like a reasonable and prudent physician? And I think most reasonable and prudent patients, if they say, I want to live at all costs, but I'm refusing innovation, you might have to make that call. And it's not, it's irreversible to not innovate that patient or resuscitate that patient. But it's reversible if they you innovate them and support them and get more information from family. So I think. If, you, if the patient seems to be making a decision that's really inconsistent with their voiced goals of care, maybe they don't really have capacity. Maybe they're not understanding what you're recommending. So I think that you have to always err on the side of patient's best interest, good faith effort, reasonable and prudent, and you're not we're not always going to be right. We have to just do the best we can.
0: In that situation, that patient might think that the tube itself is going to harm them and therefore... They shouldn't get the two because then it will kill them. Not that it's going to save them. Right. Then they don't have the capacity to make that decision. And they've just proven that was an excellent example. So when you're, what needs to be documented in that situation?
2: So medical capacity, and I'm basing a lot of my knowledge on Indiana law, because that's where I practice. And it's very similar in other states. You can easily Google your state statutes. I forget where you are in New Jersey. New York. New York.
0: Everything's legal in New Jersey.
2: Informed consent in New York and, you will likely find details of the statute. So a typical medical capacity evaluation includes the patient has understanding. They appreciate the situation and how serious it is. They show some evidence of reasoning. Okay. And that's hard. And that's really hard to evaluate and they can communicate. So if a patient, they have their eyes closed, they're not nodding or shaking their head, they're not communicating. To have capacity, they have to have some degree of communication. They have to demonstrate some degree of understanding. But again, it's always going to depend on the urgency of the situation. And you know, the priority is acting in the patient's best interest, doing what's reasonable kind of trumps any prolonged evaluation that could you know cause more harm to the patient.
0: Excellent. Excellent. This has been a uh... Super educational discussion. Is there anything else that you want to tell us either about informed consent or capacity or both?
2: So, I think that again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but patient's best interest, reasonable and prudent, good faith effort, those are the things that you have to remember. And also remember that there are some exceptions. So, an emergency uh, situation is an exception. There's a kind of an outlier of exception that's called therapeutic privilege. And so that is a really unusual situation where a physician decides the patient really won't benefit from hearing these complications or getting the full picture. So it's really an outdated view, but there are multiple legal cases that show that a piece or some patients you've told their physician, just don't tell me, just do what you think is necessary, but that's very uncommon. And I have some legal cases I can send you, but if you're interested in links, I have an article that a good friend of mine wrote about informed consent. So lots of Legal cases dating back many years, and again, it dates back to when it was viewed as battery if you didn't get informed consent, but now it falls under medical malpractice law, so it's viewed as negligence if you don't get informed consent. So one will
0: land you in jail, and the other one will hit you in the pockets.
2: And so the good news is you probably won't land in jail. The bad news is that you'll be forced to settle or lose a malpractice judgment. If you
0: send those along, I can include them in the show notes for the listeners, so we'll do that.
2: Okay, I'll be happy to.
0: That'd be great. Dr. Melanie Heff, thanks so much for your time.
2: All right. Thank you. Have a good night.
0: Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast
1: does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.